0: Does Madonna, Americans... and i love that because that's that's exactly the orientation of the film is these guys don't have the intellectual and egoistic hubris of everybody else around them
1: What is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world, and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith, and I am Troy Polidori. And this week, this is the first like normal episode that we have done since the beginning of December, brother. Do you realize that that? That's crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. It was the last normal episode we did was with Macon. Oh, yeah. Wow, that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then there was the one when you were out, and then we did kind of like shitty, sticky, end-of-the-year thing. So this is the first one. We're kind of back in our groove, starting off 2021, had a little bit of a holiday break. You got a bunch of snow. I had a little bit of a vacation, you know, and now, uh, now Civil I think War- we're recharged.
0: Yeah, Civil War is about that? to break out in the United States. So, yeah, back into our groove. dude. dude.
1: Yeah, are things really bad at the moment right now? Is it our tensions pretty high still? Uh, I would say yes. <laughs> I think uh, yeah. I
0: wrote, we're recording this um, about 36 hours before the inauguration is supposed to happen. And yeah. uh, I, I was just saying yesterday that um, I'm actually going to watch the inauguration this year. I think for the first time, maybe I watched Obama's in 08, I don't remember. But mm-hmm. I'm not the kind of thing I would ever want to watch, like the pageantry and stuff. Just kind of, I just have no um, receptors for that, you know. But I'm actually yeah. going to watch it, like almost because I, I I'm like worried about what's going to happen. So just that kind of dread, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, maybe this will all be for naught and everything will go swimmingly, and that'll be that. But uh, I don't think anyone's confident that that's the case
1: right now. That's so interesting. Yeah, you'd think that when. All the eyes are on a particular event and when security is ramped up at a particular event, you think that would be the time that everyone would not do something. But maybe this is just such a a contracted point of tension that nothing can stop it, you know, that it's just it's just too much for any sanity or any structures to prevent the chaos.
0: Yeah, I think that would that would be the case in any other context. I think the thing that really kind of um, destabilizes it and makes people uncertain is the Joint Chiefs of Staff released a statement reminding all servicemen and women that they're not to accept extremist ideologies, which is a very like hmm. my shirt that says I'm not an extremist ideology supporter, like it explains what's going what's that meme i've already forgotten it (laughs) (laughs) i Um, don't even
1: know what you're talking about i was following you but yeah i don't know i was hoping you were gonna yeah bring me in
0: more meme obsessed audiences will understand what i'm hinting at uh Um, yes okay yeah and then also um i think it was the doj that said i think yesterday or the ap the associated press reported something like that the doj is looking into the possibility of that the national guard which has been deployed all over dc as like the source of possible attacks so like that's the thing that makes people a really little oh. uneasy i think is that yeah I got the, the national guard's yeah, all yeah. over dc but that might be the problem <laughs> um so yeah i mean still probably nothing will happen but yeah i mean we said that before so you know what i'm just going to wait and see by the time yeah, this comes out we'll know
1: yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, obviously, nothing does happen. So if any of you out there are uh, spiritual types or mystical types or whatever, you know, send out that pod- positive energy, prayers, whatever it is that you do. Or if you are a, um, uh, a scientific, what is what does Gabriel call them? I totally forgot. Uh, um, like scientific physi- naturalist? Uh, f- yeah, the, the physicalists, the what does he call it? Oh, fuck. He has that uh, he has to invent a
0: new name for it, even though there's plenty of other names for it. It's ridiculous. I know.
1: Rather than scientific reductionist, it's like physical, physical. Oh fuck uh, me! Uh,
0: eliminativist microphysicalism. Is that what you're looking for? <laughs> that's, that's <the> one. <laughs>
1: the one that's the one if you believe in that then hopefully we just think that uh whatever it is that drives uh the micro uh, impulses are kept at bay for this particular point of tension whatever yeah, it is
0: consult laplace's demon he'll know <laughs> you know
1: yeah <laughs> he'll that's know the, the current arrangement of the atoms there you go um yeah, and so this week what we're going to do to kind of get things back going again is we're going to talk about a movie, but really a sort of like movie franchise, which might sound interesting to hear us talk about how this is a movie franchise, but really this is a legit movie franchise now. Once you do 3 films, It is now officially a franchise. Two is just a film and a sequel. Three is a franchise. So, I mean, do you want to just give them a clue real quick of what we're going to talk about here, brother? Yeah. Party on, dudes. dudes. Party on, dudes. Party on, dudes. Be excellent to each other. We are going to be talking about Bill and Ted's The Franchise. Obviously, there's the first one, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The second one, Bogus Journey. And then the most recent one is Face the Music. Bill and Ted Face the Music. Is that correct? Yes, and I will say
0: that I – mean, I don't know how what your take is going to be on it, but I think that Bill and Ted is a, a – especially in the 90s and I think even now, a sort of radical ethical narrative um, and not in the sense that I think it's meant to be like politically subversive or whatever, but I think it's authentically ethically subversive. And so, yeah, that's a little, little teaser for what I think uh, we'll talk a bit about.
1: That's super cool. Okay, so I'm kind of curious. So yeah, so that's what we're going to jump into in our main segment. Um, Before we do that, though, I just wanted to take a minute to kind of give a quick plug to a show that I am starring in here in Sydney that is called True West, and it is a famous um, American classic. It's a play that was written by Sam Shepard. If you're familiar with Sam Shepard, you kind of get the idea. It's going to be rich with family dramas as well as sort of analyzing culture. He started, as, started out as an avant-garde playwright and then became um, a sort of more introspective um, person that was really exploring the demons in his own family traumas but while also kind of reading them through the landscape of the uh, resentments of uh, America in the 1970s. Um, as he believed American culture was completely declining. So this story, True West, is about the decline of the myth of the West. Um, Not the West as in the global West, but um, the U.S. West, Western cowboys and shit like that. Um, The kind of uh, manifest destiny, prairie life, going out and and having your freedom on your ranch kind of myth. Homesteader type stuff, yeah homesteader stuff exactly that has been fed to us from uh from western films uh and things like that and so but he explores this this myth of the death of the west through this really intense family drama and uh that stars it's basically a two-hander these two brothers who are thrust back into their mother's house and i play the kind of wild brother who's been living out on the desert and he kind of comes back in because of circumstances that you know you don't want to give too much away here and then he runs into his screenwriter brother who is in uh, the mother's house working on uh, a script that he has to get done and um, Sam Shepard famously said that these are actually two sides of himself uh, the screenwriter side as he was kind of getting sucked into Hollywood and feeling a certain pressure during his first marriage when he, was, when he was a bit younger. And then the older brother character that I'm playing, Lee, is the fear that he would always kind of fall into this character that was a lot like his father, an alcoholic uh, a bit of a wild child, um, kind of untethered um, with no grounding in any sort of purpose or um, anything consistent, anything like that. So anyway, it's, uh, it's a really fucking rich show and uh, yeah, we're super stoked to do it. It's directed by this uh, marvelous, actually, Australian actor named Georgina Symes. She's in the TV show, I think it's called Frayed, um, F-R-A-Y-E-D, I think is what it is. Um, but she's also just, she's been in tons of stuff throughout her career. She was in the movie Baby Teeth, if you saw Baby Teeth, um, which is a fantastic Auss- Aussie film that came out last year. I heard um, about that,
0: but I haven't seen it yet.
1: Yeah, really good, really good. So um, she's a phenomenal actress and artist and creative, and so she's directing... And uh, so I star in it along with uh, an Australian actor named Ryan Bown. And, of course, if you're in the Sydney area, we'd love to have you. It's playing at the Flight Path Theater in Merrickville. And it runs the first week of February from the – so it's the 3rd through the 7th. Um, There are six shows, but there's a preview night the night of the 2nd. So um, that's also available even though it's pretty much sold out at the moment. Um, But, yeah, you can come and check out. Uh, That, if you're not local, we're actually doing a a couple of options for a live stream. So it's Saturday the 6th will be the two live stream options. We're doing the matinee and the evening version, which should accommodate most time zones. But the good thing also is that if you can't make it at those time zones because, you know, you're a day behind so it's actually Friday for you and you've got work or something like that, that's totally cool. Um, You can access the video archive for up to a week afterwards. Right, so you don't have to worry about rushing if you can't make it at that time and actually seeing it at the time when it's live. We're gonna post up. Uh, you'll get a link, uh, code, everything like that, so you can go to the website and you can actually watch it at your own leisure for a week afterwards. And the I, live stream I will is cheapest really chips. Yeah, dude. I'm really,
0: really quick. I've done the math, and uh, the Saturday matinee is gonna be, I believe, at 10 p.m. East Coast time in the states. On Friday so, night. On Friday night. So, yeah, you shouldn't have any work conflicts. And since you shouldn't be going out if you're in the States and doing anything irresponsible, just stay That's home, right. have a glass of whiskey, and watch some Sam Shepard
1: with Austin. Actually, if it, having a glass of whiskey and watching Sam Shepard is the way that it's supposed to be done. Whiskey exactly. and a beer <laughs> and some Sam Shepard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, none of those, like, Aperol spritzers or anything like that. Like, you got to have <laughs> – Something hard, you know, like, uh, I don't know if you ever watched New Girl, but Nick, one of the characters is like, you know, now I just want to drink something that would make like that a coal miner would drink. It's kind of <laughs> like that. Like, yeah, something hard that kind of makes you angry when you drink it. Um, But yeah, so it, uh, so there's options to see it. And that's East Coast time. So if you're on the West Coast, if you're in the UK, we're actually, we're also recording the matinee version, which means it's in the morning for you, Saturday morning for you. Um, And then again, like I said, you get access to the archived video, so you can watch it anytime. It's Cheap as Chips. Uh, It's 15 bucks Australian, which is like 12 bucks US. It's like nine pounds, like 10 euros um, to get the live version. I'm sorry to get the live stream version. Obviously, tickets in the theater are a little bit more expensive, but they're still quite reasonable, Uh, at least according to Sydney standards. I went to a show uh, a while back, and it was like 100 bucks for uh, for for a theater seat, just for like a standard theater seat. So you know, ours are ours are 35 bucks. So. Indie theater at its finest, my friends. Come check it out. It's gonna be super rich, and the themes are super, super, super cool. So our audience obviously is into that sort of analysis shit, and uh, yeah, I'd actually love to do some sort of like deep dive into this play um, because it's there's so many fucking layers. So but yeah, check it out. You can go to the website truewestsydney.com or you can check us out on Insta truewest2021. We would love the support. We uh, we need the support. So if you can do it. Stop what you're doing right now. Go get your live stream ticket. Or if you're in Sydney, come and see us and we'll hang out afterwards and have a little wine and some beer with the cast and stuff like that. But yeah, check it out. Well, dude. That's all I got to say.
0: Are we going to talk about this on the podcast after
1: it's over? We definitely could, man. Yeah, dude. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you? Are you? Have you seen um, any? Like, because they made a movie off of one of his plays, "Fool for Love." Have you seen anything? Have you read any of his plays? Are you familiar with him? I mean, I know I've heard his name forever, but I'm trying
0: to recall what are what are some of the more famous um, adaptations.
1: Well, so the the play that won the Pulitzer Prize was called "Buried Child." So unless you've either seen it or read it, you probably don't know it because I don't believe there's a film made from it. There's Fool for Love, which is another play. Um, and that one was made into a film. And then there's obviously True West, which has not been made into a film. There aren't many like adaptations of his plays that have been brought to the screen. And I, th- I think there's a reason for that. They're kind of... They're really made for the stage. They're really hmm. written for the stage. You can obviously adapt anything, right? But it would almost be a disservice, I think, to try to make a film out of this. Like, I don't know. I don't—you could do it. You could definitely do it. But I don't know. I think it would take the right vision, the right craft, especially a play like this. The entire play takes place in uh, a kitchen and an alcove in a suburban home in Pasadena, California. Hmm. <clears throat> you know? So it, you could do it low budget. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So but he's just one of those guys that like everybody talks about that. Like that's how I was with me. Like everyone was like, oh, my God, Sam Shepard, Sam Shepard. And when you're in acting classes, everyone does scenes. And I, finally I was like, well, I got to read some fucking Sam Shepard plays. And then I did and I just fell in love, you know, so. Yeah, I think I, I know him more as an actor probably than as mm-hmm. a writer. Um,
0: I didn't realize this. I'm on his IMDb right now. He played Chuck Yeager in a movie.
1: Oh yeah, in um The Right Stuff. Um Thank you, The Right Stuff. That's he won an Academy Award for that. Or at least he was nominated.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'll have to check that out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that was in like what eighty four or something like that? That's like eighty three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was like one of his big one of his big roles. So and for you softies out there that are into your romance novels, he plays the dad. In The Notebook, Ryan Gosling's character's dad. Really? right? Yeah, and he's like this old, kind of like lived cowboy dude, but who also like has his son read Walt Whitman and shit like that, which is totally who Sam Shepard was. This fucking (laughs) hardened ranchy cowboy dude who'd also quote like Byron to you, you know, Lord Byron to you. So it's like, that's, he's a fucking warrior poet, man. (laughs) (laughs) So... But, yeah, so check that out, TrueWestSydney.com, or uh, give us a follow on Insta, TrueWest2021, and get those live stream tickets. It's going to be a fucking sick show. The show's super punk rock, man. I don't want to give too much away, but let me just tell you, (laughs) it's fucking chaotic as shit. Like, my body is bruised up right now. We've been gnarly deep into rehearsals right now, and uh, my fucking knee is all skinned up. I had a bump on my eye, like... Yeah, it, it gets fucking crazy. That's all I want to say. Like, fucking insane. So, I'll awesome. check that shit. Yeah. All right, let's get into this madness, yeah?
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing we got to do before we start talking about our main segment on Bill and Ted is that shitty minute, yo. Yeah. For those who don't know, the shitty minute is the part of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down?
1: I mean, so this, I'll keep it real short since we've kind of already, the intro has been a little bit long. um, And this is something that is just a constant shitty minute for me. And it's something that uh, I'm just kind of navigating through at the moment. But it's about Instagram, right? And uh, I I guess we can broaden this out to social media more generally. But it's just about how hard it is to be authentic on Instagram. And uh, I don't just mean that in the sense that it's like, Because we feel a pressure to say the same things and look the same way and stand in the same poses and go to the same locations and, you know, like, you know, take photos of our food and take photos of this sunset or whatever. I don't just mean that. That's also one of the things that I think diminishes um, authenticity on these social media outlets or platforms. But I think it's something maybe even potentially more structural than that or more um, foundational than that and I wonder if there's something about the actual medium itself Like, like sharing you've talked about this before with regards to Twitter and we talked about how it's almost like you're monologuing right? Like you're not actually talking to a person, you're talking like at a crowd. And and I likened it to like that actor on stage. That's like you're having the dialogue and then all of a sudden you open up for your song and you're like shouting to the upper circle or something like that, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's what you do on Twitter. And I feel like there's something about the medium that really just, and I don't know what it is. I'm sure there's something really clever and I'm trying to put my finger on it because there's a lot of stuff that has been said about this, but I think there's something else about the medium itself and how the medium is fundamentally contradictory to this thing that we might desire for um, that we call authenticity, right? Or honesty or um, uh, yeah, yeah, something along those lines. And I don't know what it is. There's something about the. Medium. Is it photos? Is it because of the the problem that comes with representation like when you represent something is that already a mimetic thing and then when you add the fact that it's a social landscape where you're socially representing so what you have is like a mimetic viral spread of representation and then when that happens after like 10 degrees of separation away from the event then it is that what it is is i'm trying to figure out what it is but it's so hard and then at the same time and this is one of my kind of 2021 goals. I, I tweeted about this, but like, I really want to find joy in things that for the past 10 years, all I've done is critique, right? So, I'm one of the things that Sam Shepard is doing to kind of go back to this, is he's kind of in some ways turning my eye to love americana so actually i told troy about this you know and troy was like i'm gonna send you some great americana music and all i've been doing bro is listening to that playlist (laughs) for like the last couple weeks and it's fucking great dude it's so good Anton yeah Oh, my God, and, and Prine, and fucking, I, I'm so deep in it, right? Like, the King of California is, like, literally the song that is giving me so much life every single day right now. I, I wake up every single day, and I literally, I, I kid you not, that is, like, the thing that I turn on. <laughs> if people don't know, uh, if people don't know, check it out. It's Dave Alvin, King of California. This, uh yeah, it's just fucking fantastic. I love it so much. Anyway, I'm trying to fall in love with America even though I know that – I think I mentioned this on the podcast last year that I finally got to the point where I feel 100% comfortable saying fuck fuck America. And so now I'm trying to be like, okay, even though I can say that American imperialism – um, you know, the, the the tensions, the country that was built on bloodshed and, um, and slavery and economic exploitation, all those things are there. But at the same time, is there something beautiful about life itself? Because if you don't do that, then aren't you just simply living ironically as a type of idealist that is, in the Nietzschean sense, like nihilistically rejecting the world that is in favor of some ideal, right? And I don't know, but I feel like the left is— in their tendencies to critique often end up being nihilistic, right? And so I'm I'm curious and I want to try to explore now is are there ways to affirm? And so I'm thinking is there a way to affirm using Instagram photos and using Twitter without <laughs> f- falling into those traps, you know? Like is there a way to post a photo where it isn't just you mimetically repeating some bullshit that somebody else has said or or that you're turning outwards to the audience and trying to condescend to the audience. And then this is the last thing I'll say. I think it's Robert McKee who famously said that the definition of a hack as a writer, he's a famous screenwriter and writing coach and stuff like that for people who don't know, said the definition of a hack, uh, I think it was Robert McKee, May have been one of the others. I can't remember. But anyway, uh, the definition of a hack is the writer who condescends to the audience. The writer who turns to the market and says, "Well, what's the market dictate, and therefore that's going to determine what I write," rather than saying this is kind of like authentically coming from me. And I feel like there's something. So the essentially entirety ha- of Hollywood. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. And there's something essentially hacky about Instagram because it's all condescension to the market or to the audience. Right. So can we find authenticity in this stuff? And this is my shitty minute because I don't know. But there has to be something because it's humans. And I believe that that, if there is anything such a thing as authenticity, it has to come from humans. And if humans are doing this, where is that spark of authenticity coming from? And unless you're just going to be some sort of like dire Lacanian structuralist that everything is fucking always already, you know, kind of contaminated, if you will, by the symbolic – and I don't want to, to, to be that, then I want to know what is the source of that and then how can I tap into that and how can I really stimulate that and how can I not judge others and recognize that maybe there is a spark of authenticity even in those fucking inspo, fitpo, whatever they're called, like uh, influencer types. Is there something, is there a spark of life there that I, can, that I can really appreciate rather than just having a critical eye to it? So that's my shitty minute because I just, I'm kind of stuck.
0: Yeah, dude. I mean, I definitely vibe with the like Kierkegaardian got to hold both the critical and the affirmative in your mind at the same time kind of thing. I'm all mm-hmm. about that shit. But man, trying to do that <laughs> with Instagram, that feels like trying to get to the moon without a spacesuit. <laughs> yeah, it's like tapping a dry well, man. That's going to be the hardest possible task you could <laughs> seek out. But no, like I, I think, I mean, just riffing on what you were talking about. It seems like the issue with Instagram, and here, here's a contrast with Twitter, right? Twitter is fundamentally like the restrictions on a tweet make it so that it's impossible to have um, like a, to have a flourishing dialogue that actually enriches everybody involved, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then everyone knows that. And so there's like a fundamentally ironic posture to it that everyone has, yeah. which is we're clearly here to just Get a dose of dopamine through a joke or through a whatever, and then the posting links to is a whole separate thing, right? Um, right. It's like a purely utilitarian uh, process of like getting out good uh, resources, um, and so no one takes it that seriously. I say that as like now everybody takes it seriously to get their political ideology from Twitter. That's why it sucks <laughs> now. Um, but Instagram, if you like, I don't really usually. I, don't, I have an Instagram, but I rarely ever use it. It does seem like the whole, the fundamental process is presentation of an identity. Like you post pictures and put a caption on it as a sort of symbol or like a peek into your self. It's a presentation of a self, right? And so you like kind of construct the the self and all its well rounded, you know, um, uh, complexities or whatever through Instagram posts, which is like fine, right? If you're just you know telling people what you're up to and posting pictures to family and friends who want to see what you're doing. If you don't live near them or whatever, and totally, nothing wrong with that. It's totally innocent. But then like, also that's what gives it the possibility of being used. So nefariously, right. When we're sort of pushed and incentivized to own, to make our lives look a certain kind of idyllic way that they're not actually, which they're not actually right. Mm. Um, And there's been studies that have shown this on Instagram, right, where it's like um, the only way to get the most possible likes and to become like an Instagram influencer or whatever, right, is to kind of just continuously lie about how great your life is. Um, Right. And that's incentivized um, to the point where, yeah, I mean, where's the authenticity? Like, are you going to post stuff of brushing my teeth, right? Got some nasty plaque out of it so good uh you know i had the worst poop of the month right like you can't do shit like that um yeah i don't know what would it be what would the authentic instagram experience be and not authentic in the sense of like always tell the truth because that's not necessarily authenticity right um right. but in a way that escapes that you know f- that like deceptive presentation of an idyllic life kind of thing
1: well for the most part isn't this one of the potential problems we could say with the photographic medium itself we tend to just simply store memories of of happy times right which is why like um like uh it can be so difficult to look through i was talking about this with with uh my girl recently like when you look through photos of exes it's always like you and happy times right mm. and it gives a distorted view of what the relationship was because you're being re-minded, it is a representation of all of those just happy times that you had and it can totally kind of um, create a, a weird relationship to that person or the event or the time or to your life, right? So is there something about the kind of like photographic medium itself that is more, more kind of that leads in that direction? Of course not all photography is that way, right? Like, a lot of photography... The best
0: photography is often extremely critical and shows scenes of despair
1: and sadness and everything, yeah. Right, exactly. Which is why I think in film, we're much more likely to criticize when it's just simply sappy, sentimental, saccharine stuff, right? Sometimes we can enjoy it, but if it's all that, it's like, oh, it's too much, right? Which is why we also love fucking dramas and tragedies and Schindler's List and shit like that, you know? Like, we crave those things. But... Instagram doesn't seem to be a medium that really lends towards that type of presentation. Not that there aren't Mm. accounts that don't do that. Not that there aren't accounts that try to say, hey, let's raise awareness. But it's still all couched within the shininess of digitized photography. I think there's something about the medium of digitization that changes something. Um, It's all done through filters. It's all through uh, beautification. Or we might even just simply say it has to do with the aestheticization of life under the conditions of a sort of like neoliberal capitalist logic that is trying to... that is concerned with you maintaining your reputational value. And this is where the work of someone like Michelle Ferrer might give us an insight into what's going on here is that it's all about the maintenance of a, to a form of human capital but all through your rating, through your reputational value. So you're trying to court investment from other people by trying to court their attention, by trying to court their engagement and their interaction. So even if you do present something real like, hey, guess what, guys? I know we all struggle with uh, mental issues, anxiety, depression, da 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 It's still the medium itself uh, it, it takes you one step away because it's all being coded, potentially overcoded by that tendency towards the production and increase of, of value, of reputational value. You know? So there's yeah. something there's something going on,
0: you know? No, I think I think that's exactly right that it's like it's aestheticization and also um, the the sort of uh, reputational value governs the norms of how you use Instagram right but it doesn't it didn't have to be that way right I think is the key like that's a contingent um factor that I mean Instagram came came around later um than the earliest social media stuff right it's like a mid 2010s when Instagram started
1: Um, Yeah, something like
0: that but like you remember the early days of like Facebook and Twitter I mean the early days of Facebook yeah there was a lot of teenage melodrama given who was using it and stuff right but Mm -hmm. from what I remember the early days of Facebook were like You're just, like, saying cool shit to your friends. No one really cared about – I guess a lot of people cared about how many friends you had, right, or whatever. And that was probably the beginning of the whole reputational value thing, right? Um, But then even Twitter was just, like, it was just a whole bunch of links and jokes. And no one really gave a shit about anything else. No one took it that seriously. (laughs) But then, yeah, every social media platform, it seems like, has been codified into this, like, way to um, develop your reputational value. And that seems to be the governing logic that makes it so that, yeah, is it possible to have authentic expression? Maybe not because, and not, not just because you can't, it's got nothing to do with the intentions of the actor, right? It's all about the right. structural uh, features yes. of the system in which one acts, such that if someone were to, like, really, um, uh, you know, beneficently post a picture of, people who are suffering in a third world country to raise awareness. And they really weren't virtue signaling. They really wanted to just get attention out there. We need malaria nets. We need them. Come on, please donate, whatever, right? Right. That could, that could be completely innocently um, offered in terms of the person's intentions. And yet it would be interpreted by probably nearly everybody as, oh, this is virtue signaling, right? This is someone's attempts to raise their reputation as a do-gooder. And not because everyone's purely cynical, but because that's just the way that that structure, that system works. And so it it would make sense to interpret it that way. And that's just like a sad state of affairs.
1: Well, and the other thing is it it would raise that person's reputational value, right? That's the other thing is it would actually fit within that logic of uh, kind of neoliberal, assetized – Um, assetized socioeconomic relations, it would kind of produce something. Even if that person, like you said, not only might there be some people who would look at it cynically, but then at the same time just from a sort of like, what are the effects of it? The effects of it are that person would increase their reputational value. Now, is that a bad thing? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is all done in the service of this larger structural tendency that is about um, increasing the value of the platform. And you're creating free content on a platform, so you are working and laboring, and so there's a sense in which there is this also this uh, compulsion and an impulsion as you are sort of like libidinally investing your attention and your energy into this platform that is then extracting you know billions and billions worth of value um, in the form of data from us. So that's also another element, and I think that that I don't know, man, but there's got to be something. It's like uh, it's like in nonviolent communication when Marshall Rosenberg is kind of like, okay, well, what is what is what is the sort of like feeling behind this? So like when somebody posts like just smashed it at the gym, like say like it's the most <laughs> like obnoxious broy dude, and he's like just smashed it at the gym. Look at how fucking ripped I am. Oh, by the way, buy my supplements, link below. I just want to buy myself a Ferrari. Say it's like totally like <laughs> like like in your face, like annoying, right? And it's like it, there's no pretense, there's no there's no like veneer of uh, a social. Social concerns or anything those guys what are they really saying what do they want love were they like do they want connection do they want joy are they seeking like there's something right there's something truthful that is being expressed in that even if it's fucking hidden and even if that person does not know it there's something that is authentic there and i don't know i kind of want to just tap into that and And without just being critical and being like, oh, well, that guy's just an idiot and doesn't realize that he's got daddy issues and his dad rejected (laughs) him and therefore that's why he's doing it. I don't want to go there. You know, like my mind will already go there and there's a ton of people that are already going there and that's great. I just want to, for my own maybe curiosity and to kind of like just try on a different hat, I want to see how far I can kind of indulge in the authenticity of it. You know
0: what what would be the ultimate like Zizekian subversive move to make there? Mm -hmm. So you'd have to – only post things that will have neutral or negative reputational value, right? But then also not sort of fall into like the ironic, cynical, cool guy reputational value thing, where it's like, yeah, I'm I'm subverting the norms of Instagram here. So like, you'd have to avoid that Scylla and Charybdis, right? And yeah. Get in between somewhere, like just post pictures of like, um. Like I just shaved,
1: but like you've only half shaved. Yeah. So you just failed, (laughs) right? At the basic human task. This is this is the very last this is the last thing I'll say and then we'll get into this. I tried a little experiment last year. I don't know cuz you're not on Insta that much if you if you noticed it. What I would do is I would take like a typical sort of like douchebaggy photo and the problem is is nobody got it, right? Like nobody got what I was doing. <laughs> but I would take like a typical douchebaggy photo. So like the first one I did is me at this outdoor park and I'm working out and there's this guy working out behind me and I just my uh my bio is hell as other people. <laughs> and then I thought that would be kind of funny and then I did one where I have a photo of me and my mirror and like my abs are kind of showing and shit like that And uh, I've got my tattoo showing that's based on Lacan's uh, graph of sexuation. And I actually quote uh, Il n'y a pas de rapport sexual. There is no such thing as a sexual relationship. And then it just (laughs) goes between male and female human beings, there is no such thing as an instinctive relationship because all sexuality is marked by the signifier. But it's like, it's just, to me, it was absurd and stupid, right? And then I've got another one that's like a a, a mirror selfie of me and it's a long quote about the object cause of desire. And then I have an (laughs) And then I have I have a picture of me doing pull ups at this outside place, and I have a Frank Ruta quote on uh, feminine courage. Um, so it was like I thought that shit was really funny, but nobody fucking got it. And people would be like, "Dude, what is what does this caption have to do with the photo?" Or I even had people like DM me and were like, "I don't know about this caption," and I was like, "Guys, I was literally just trying." Like I was trying to just do something funny and I thought you guys would all realize, especially if you looked at my hashtags because my hashtags were all like micro-influencer, nano-influencer and then like douchebag or blah, blah, blah or whatever. And I thought – I was being too clever I guess and I needed to be more specific but I thought that they would realize that it was like, oh, okay, he's doing something silly because these quotes, one, have no connection to the photo and more than that, they're not like inspirational quotes at all. They're just like these weird, obscure – philosophical quotes right and and no one got it so i don't know what to do man
0: no dude i think maybe you've hit on something really important i think it's instagram's dada moment right now like there has to be a dadaist uh like era of instagram that you could yeah. start. oh i'm like, down you just post I- pictures of like the floor or like the <laughs> raccoon in your trash can or, you know, three Hyundais parked next to each other at a Kroger. And then just random quotes that you pull off of brainyquotes.com.
1: Yeah, and they've got to be like blurry photos and not framed well. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like my finger is over the, the camera lens or whatever. Dude, I'm into this. Like, I would actually be part of this. This sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, I'm sure someone's already doing it and they have like <laughs> 700,000 followers.
0: And- <laughs> <Right>. It's already <laughs> failed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's stop talking about this. That went a lot longer than I was anticipating, but there's just so much good stuff to talk about here. Of course, if you have thoughts out there, please reach out to us. Let us know. How can we be fucking authentic on Instagram? Maybe I'm going to go to my Instagram actually right now, and I'm actually going to ask that. I'm going to take a photo of my floor or the Hyundais outside of a Kroger, even though we don't have a Kroger here, and I'm going to say, how can you be authentic on Instagram? And if you guys want to contribute, fucking come find me. Uh, It's AUS underscore H-A-Y. But, yeah, I know I'm throwing all kinds of stuff at you today, but, you know, come, find, interact, engage. Let us know what you think. All right, let's get into this main segment here, y'all, brother.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about Bill and Ted in this main segment. And as Austin said earlier, there's now three films, um, Excellent Adventure, Bubba's Journey, and Face the Music. The first two films came out in, I think, like, what, 89, 91, somewhere around there. Late in the nineties, and um, the most recent film came out uh, just this last year, with the stars Kenan Reeves and Alex Winter in their what early fifties, maybe late forties, early fifties.
1: Yeah. Oh, they're in their fifties for sure. Yeah. Certainly
0: looking it. <laughs> um, they're they're not Tom cruising it, uh, and surely hmm. that has to do with you know they're they're intentionally not made up to look like they're still youthful. Um, and I think probably anybody who's listening to this is at least familiar with the Bill and Ted, right? the, the caricature is that they're um, they're not surfer bros, but they're surfer bros from Southern California, right? Um, who go through in the first film at least a time time travel expedition to pass their history exam to graduate. Otherwise, mm-hmm. um, is it Bill? No, it's Ted that's going to go to military school if they don't pass their exam. That's right. right. Uh, and yeah. it's kind fun of fact,
1: from... fun fact. his dad how is played by Hal Landon Jr., who's in this one, who's in the most recent one as well. He was my first, like, professional acting coach when I was, like, 18, 19 years old. So I did not know fact.
0: that. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, did you try to drop any, like, uh, dudes to him? Or were you familiar uh, no, we... with,
0: with him yet at that time?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I recognized him. As soon as I walked in, I was like, oh, <gasps> I was like, you're ted's dad (laughs) so absolutely (laughs) but he used to play scrooge in a production of the christmas carol at the orange county performing arts center Uh, or actually it was the south coast repertory i think it was like every single year um or or maybe i don't know if it was every year but he did it a few times but he's he's brilliant he's absolutely fantastic but yeah oh definitely i remember we talked about bill and ted's all the time so yeah. yeah
0: yeah so i think the the caricature of the of the Franchise, especially the first film, which I think was by far the most popular. The second film, I don't think did it nearly as well. Um, it's not nearly as good a movie either as the first one. Um, no. Is that it's a stoner comedy, right? It's a dumb yeah. stoner comedy about idiots who happen to save the world. And that kind of mm. uh, ironic mm. posture to time travel uh, sci-fi movies meets stoner comedies, meets like John Hughes style films to some degree, right? Because um, it, it parodies some of that kind of John Hughes high school film too with like um, the Missy uh, who was yeah. like the, a senior in high school when they were freshmen and they right. uh, they crush on her big time and then she marries Bill's dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we find out in the most recent movie, then marries Ted's dad, then marries Ted's brother. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I think there's a different take and I, I'm curious what you think about this. I think that and this in this part comes from how I've always thought about these films, but um, there's also a, a recent interview with Ed Solomon, who's one of the creators of Bill and Ted. He did an interview with the Very Bad Wizards podcast. Do you know of those guys? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, they're a great philosophy, psychology podcast, and they had Ed Solomon on. And he was talking about some of the philosophical and uh, religious background um, that he has intellectually, and he's a really smart guy, Ed Solomon. Um very, very knowledgeable, um, especially for a lay person. And um, it really kind of jived with how I've always thought about Bill and Ted as being these kind of ethical paragons in a way. Um, if you remember, I think the key scene for the philosophical background of of these films is when Bill and Ted go back to ancient Greece and they find Socrates. All we uh,
1: are is dust in the wind, bro. Yeah. Dust. Socrates loves that, right? wind dude (laughs) and then it's like they pointed him and they're like dude (laughs) dust
0: wind dude i love it yeah and it's the scene before that actually that i think is the key one because they're trying to figure out where they are and they happen upon i don't remember if it's 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 probably a work by plato right Um, but they probably don't say that because it's confusing that plato writes about socrates um and they say they read some line about um like true wisdom or the beginning of wisdom is knowing that you know nothing, right? Socratic wisdom idea.
1: Oh, right. And
0: then, right. right and Bill says, I can't remember if it's Bill or Ted. One of them says, dude, that's us. Dude, <laughs> that's like, us. As in, yeah. we know nothing. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> and I love that right. because that's, that's exactly the orientation of the film is these guys don't have the intellectual and egoistic hubris of everybody else around them. They actually realize they don't know anything. And that's mm. what allows them to be authentic, ethical subjects, even though they fuck up all the time, right? Even though, even in terribly in the film, like, you know, in the first film, like, they, they have the kind of antiquated line now where they uh, say fags, right? Which, like, comes across as a, like, a sword to the throat now when you listen to it, right? Because that would never mm. happen in a contemporary film. Um, they're certainly not, like the kind of figures you emulate as you tell a child to emulate from moral behavior, right? Mm. But they're ethical subjects in a different sense. I think it stems from that idea that they don't have that hubris of of knowing of having some like idea of what how they're supposed to live life. They're still in the phase where they realize they don't know what they want from life or how they should live. And that's like a Mm. the beginning point of being an ethical subject.
1: What do you think about that? yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that's really, really fascinating, and it is, it is interesting that he is the first person that they pick up, right? Or actually, no, Billy the Kid is right. Yeah. Wait, which Billy one's first? Billy the Kid is Billy, the, yeah, kid Billy is. the Kid. Yeah, yeah, Billy the Kid is first, and then they pick him up. Um, but yeah, there is something interesting in that, and with Billy the Kid, it, it's interesting they kind of pick him up, but it's uh, it's uh, it's like an accident, right, that they pick him up. Yeah. Um, whereas with Socrates, it's intentional. <laughs> Right, So that's kind of like when when the journey really begins, when they figure out this is what we've got to do. So it is kind of interesting that their intention – it's like they're intentionally knowing that they know nothing. Therefore, we're going to go and we're going to learn, right? Yeah, so, and what do they yeah. learn
0: at the end? That being excellent to each other is basically the point of, of living together. Like That's the standard and that's straight up Aristotle, man. <laughs> 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 There's virtue ethics yeah. right in here.
1: Yeah. You know it's so funny. You said that like it's kind of pitched as a, a stoner comedy, but I saw this before I'd even like ye- I mean th- years before I even touched a joint, right? So like there's no way that this wasn't to me this wasn't a stoner com- I-, I saw this when I was a kid, like under 10 for the first mm-hmm. time, you know? So and I watched it over and over and over again. So the stoner comedy element didn't come across to me. What came across to me was just like surfer dudes like simple kind of surfer bros. so And I never realized that the surfer bro kind of aesthetic is also part of the stoner bro aesthetic because, you know, when you're fucking seven years old or nine years old or whatever, you just don't know that stuff. So for me, it's really interesting how it kind of has, like the stoner comedy thing, like Biodome or something like that, kind of comes with a very explicit drug-related um, type of uh of undertones to it whereas for me this film never had that it was always very innocent and i still i don't think of it as a stoner comedy one because i don't think they ever do they reference weed like maybe i, I think a they little? do but i can't recall they certainly never actually smoke it in the movies never yeah never smoke it um but so it has an innocence to it that kind of universalizes it so that you can't simply discredit it and be like, oh, it's just it's just one of those weed movies like Pineapple Express or something like that, which I think are fucking great, but they have a very different energy about them. They have a very different vibe because they're pitched at a different level. And so I wonder if the innocence of the film kind of really taps into kind of the innocence of these characters, you know? Even though, like, Ted's dad is going to send Ted to military school because he clearly thinks he's a loser, Right? Um, so there's something about being a loser I guess but I always thought that no he's not a loser he just he just doesn't want you know he, he's got a cop of a dad and he's in this band and he wants to hang out with his boy and for me it was kind of it was much more of like a, I don't know maybe this really had an impact on my psyche but like if you want to be an artist and you want to like just do do cool shit and hang out with cool people that the world is going to be against you you know <laughs> So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's, it's interesting that uh, I just kind of still don't think of it really as a stoner comedy, but rather just like this innocent innocent sort of story of these two guys that are just on a different wavelength. And then, of course, when you add that sort of innocence and that the we know nothing to them, it really fits into this childlikeness about them, that there's a childlike wonder, if you will, that they have still about the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a great term for it. Um, and also, I think the, that kind of feeds into the idea that the the fact that they're you know surfer bro stoner bro kind of mentality music bro whatever garage band thing it's very intentionally chosen and cast that way right because that's the figure in american society in the late 80s early 90s of the most hedonistic egoistic figure according to Mm. public consciousness right like the surfer bro is the person who does nothing for the public good right they you know, aren't starting families. They aren't getting an education. They're like surfing is supposed to be the, like the thing you do only for yourself, right? Is very, it's, it's kind of cast as like this selfish thing that feeds off of her, is parasitic on society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, probably not so much anymore. I think because surfer culture has become more well-respected as like a, as a sport. And it's kind of like an aesthetic, uh, having aesthetic value of its own. But my guess is it didn't have that in the late 80s, early 90s. And so I think taking these figures and certainly like the garage band who plays like noisy music didn't have that either, right? Mm. Um, uh, It's like at best it's Nirvana and its its value is purely nihilistic, right? Um, Mm. So casting those figures as your heroes is intentional, right? The the, the people you root for and not even ironically, like you honestly as your seven-year-old self did, like you love these guys. And Mm. why? Well, because the things that animate them are love, they love each other and they love music, right? Mm. Like they want to create music. They appreciate the hell out of all the existing music, and they have a ridiculous amount of knowledge about it. Despite the fact they're supposed to be dumb, they actually know a lot about music, right? So they do care, and they do care about knowledge intrinsically, uh, as being mm. an, as, as of intrinsic value, just not about the stuff that the um, institutionalized public educational system tells them they're supposed to. Right. Which is another great thing about the film, right? Like the whole idea of they can't pass their history exam because they're so bored to tears by a bunch of names and dates being written on a chalkboard, right? But then if they go back in time and actually visit these people, like these people are awesome. Like they're funny and cool and they just want to like hang out just like these dudes do. Even Socrates, (laughs) even Abraham Lincoln, (laughs) uh, even Joan of Arc. And so – They find out that all these figures aren't boring, just uh, descriptions in a history book. Like they're really authentic flesh and blood people who have all the same cares and worries and everything else that we all do. And so you form a relationship with them. And now all of a sudden they know a shit ton about history and they pass their exam because they've actually met these people and formed relationships with them. It's such a great way of reconceptualizing the value of education as not being about, you know, the banking model. Um, of education where you just input information into somebody that can then be outputted later, but actually the forming of relations and development of affection and care.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And of course it all ties into performance. And this is one of the things that I enjoy. What they do is they don't just stand there and read Uh, about whatever the fuck it is. And remember that one guy that that goes before them, the famous, because of course there's the famous uh, punk band, uh, well, I don't know if they're famous, but if you're into underground skate punk and shit like that from back in the day, the Ataris, they had a Mm -hmm. song called San Dimas High School Football Rules, and there's that famous line where that jock is like reading, and he's like (laughs) stumbling at the end, and he just kind of stops and goes, San Dimas High School Football Rules! And the whole crowd just fucking goes crazy, right? (laughs) So, but again, these presentations are so boring, and you just stand up there, And you read off of cards. Nowadays, it's like PowerPoint presentations. But these guys come and they give a fucking rock concert, right? And this is their rock concert as Wild Stallion. This is them doing it. And they've got fucking Sigmund Freud, who does a full on psychoanalysis of Ted on stage. I mean, whoa. <laughs> whoa, yeah, like it's so fucking awesome, right? They've got like Joan of Arc doing her thing up there, and I love how Joan of Arc goes to the mall and gets really into like jazzercise or whatever the fuck it was, and you got Genghis Khan <laughs> fucking destroying a sporting goods store, and, but it's like, but it's this performance at the end that is so great, which is another expression, and this fits in exactly what you were talking about, it's another expression of presenting information, another expression of learning, another expression of education that uh, totally subverts the standard kind of public school model, the standard model that we have kind of been handed down, not even just public school, but even private schools do it, right? Unless you're at like a, a fucking Waldorf, you know, a Steiner school or a Montessori school or something like that, then you probably don't get these sort of more experimental forms of uh, of, of education. And it is so cool that it is all done through a type of, of performance. And that's probably why – like. As a teacher, I like to give – I wonder. I wonder. I like – maybe that's part, Maybe that's one of the reasons this film resonates so much with me. But I love to do presentations and I love to like give presentations. I love to do things where like people can be in it rather than just like, okay, now you're going to do an exam. And of course you have to do exams. But I prefer those other forms, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And if anything, I don't think it's like necessarily critiquing the idea of having like examinations and assessments and stuff like that. Although there are certainly critiques I think you can make of that. But just the idea that the value of education comes from like memorization and retention, when clearly no, the value of education comes from transforming yourself and forming relationships and appreciating uh, creations, and that's all the stuff they actually engage in. Um, yeah. In their sort of reformulated model of education that they develop through the course of their yeah. excellent adventure.
1: Now we we gotta get into the new film definitely, but. Um, I do want to say that, like, one of my favorite scenes in that, and I didn't understand this when I was a kid, but when they're in the mall and all the historical figures in the mall and Billy the Kid and Socrates are checking out those kids, they're like, like, what, 17, 18-year-old girls, (laughs) right? A little bit creepy. And Socrates is like a fucking 40-year-old dude, you know, almost 50-year-old dude, whatever. And they walk over and they're kind of like chatting with him. And the girls are a little bit like, what the fuck? Okay. And then all of a sudden <laughs> Sigmund Freud walks up and he's like, these girls are suffering from a mild form of hysteria. And then they're like, oh my God. And they go away. And then they're basically like, you fucking nerd, right? They call him an egghead or they call him a, a dweeb. <laughs> Do they call him a dweeb or a geek. Oh, a geek, geek. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, cause the, the girls call him a geek and so crates gets so tickled. And uh, I keep saying Socrates because I feel like that's his name. It's not Socrates in that film. No, it's Socrates. Um, (laughs) It's Socrates. And so Socrates looks over at Sigmund Freud and goes, geek, and walks off. And it's so funny because Freud was a super, super geek. And there is something about Freudian psychoanalysis that is super, super geeky. And I love the idea of seeing Socrates like transporting through time and being like, you're a fucking geek, bro. Like, (laughs) come on. I fucking love that so much. Oh, God.
0: Yeah, if there's one person in the history of philosophy who I think would appreciate a lack of pretense in somebody's, like, authentic way of living, it would for sure be Socrates.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. He could find the authenticity maybe in Instagram for us. Come on, Socrates. (laughs) Let's channel that. Um, Yeah, so what do you think, man? You want to start talking about the new film a little bit or do you still have more stuff you want to talk about with the previous two? No, I think those
0: themes really... Um, flow well into the new film, which I enjoyed. I don't think I, I certainly didn't love it in the same way I loved the the first film. And have like this deep appreciation for it. But I thought it was a super fun, uh, especially for a, a a sequel or a third film made twenty five whatever years after the last film. I thought it was probably as good as you could expect it to be. And those themes mm. that we're talking about, I think, transition really well, especially into the relationship that. Uh, Bill and Ted have with their daughters who are also mm. named Bill and Ted or Billy and Thea. Um, and it, like my, I think one of my favorite scenes um, is the couples therapy scene when mm. Bill and Ted, <laughs> who if you remember in the, in the first movie, uh, they go back to medieval England. They meet a couple of uh, hot princesses, um, bring them back and then marry them. They're in couples therapy. And the issue is that Bill and Ted can't get it through their skulls that they need to tell their wives individually that they individually love the other individual. Uh, they keep saying, Bill and I love you and her individually. right? So they, they can't, they only think in the collective, right? And I kept right. thinking like, what I love about that theme is that all of Bill and Ted's faults come from like, over identifying with goodness right like innocently non-maleficently over like falling on erring on the side of good too much against Mm. like our contemporary neuroses and our contemporary notion of like how relationships fail right like they just they love too much and they want everybody to be involved right it's like like my dog is this way he's not happy unless everybody's together in the same room. Even <laughs> if everyone's in the same house, no, not satisfied. Everyone has to be together in the same room. And it's like adorable, <laughs> right? Cause yeah, it's annoying, but then it's just because he, he just loves everybody and wants everyone to be together. Mm-hmm. And Bill and Ted are kind of like, they're kind of puppy dogs in that way.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. Th- that is, that is very sweet. And, um, i think one of the things i like about the film is that the film doesn't judge them as being at fault so much as it does it shows the sort of problems of living in a world with that framework right Mm. so it's not like it's not like that they're at fault like they're dumb that they're sort of i mean yeah they're they're a little i guess they are pitched a little bit as being dumb but it's more like a there's a tension between their way of viewing the world and the way that the world is constructed right And it's always about trying to figure out, okay, so then how can we navigate ourselves within that world? They do it in the first film. They figure it out. Oh, we can kind of make the world work for us without completely abandoning our goodness, let's say. And I think you kind of get that in this third film as well, right? They still need to learn um, how to kind of fit within the world, but they don't ever really lose themselves, right? So there's a character arc, but it's a really subtle character arc, right? It's kind of... The world changes with them, and fuck, the film is literally about them changing the world and saving the world, right? So that does kind of make sense, you know, that they don't have to have these um, stretched character arcs where you have like the fatally flawed protagonist who all of a sudden learns and comes to a point of self-realization and can never go back to the world the way it was because they have completely been illuminated or something like that. It's not quite like that. It's much more subtle, you know? No, I think you're exactly right that they don't
0: really change so much as the world changes around them, right? And it's no accident that they realize at the end of the third film, against spoilers here, so go watch the movie if you don't want to know what happens before we talk about it. um, It's their daughters who end up being the kind of hero subjects at the end who end up actually saving the world, right? And only because their daughters are just like them in the sense of emulating (laughs) their love for each other and love for music, right? And that ends up saving the world because everyone else realizes, oh, we just need to be more like them. If Mm -hmm. we emulate them, that's itself what saves the world, which is kind of like naive and and overly optimistic, right, and utopian. But I think that's fine when you're talking, one, about a non-serious comedy, right? And also just there are no other narratives that are like that, It's really hard to make that naive and optimistic of a story actually work, but it does. Mm. And I think it only works because you take these figures who would otherwise be um, the most like uh, chastised people in society, right? Mm. In the first film, it's the surfer bro, stoner bro, garage band bro, right? And here it's like the middle-aged dude who... Um, still wants to make his band work it's like pathetic right Mm. Um, but no that's actually that sort of really simple love for something um, and love for your community actually that's all that's necessary they're actually the heroes not though not not pathetic at all
1: yeah yeah exactly yeah i um i enjoyed the film mainly for just being able to hang out with bill and ted for Mm. um, a couple hours Here's my problem with the film. If I'm going to put on the critical hat for a second. And it's not yeah. even the fault of like the writing or anything like that. It was it was almost too clean. I felt like it was too too shiny, you know? Like one of the things I love about the original film is that there is a little bit of like a, a graininess to it. There's a there's a lived-inness to the mall when they go to the mall. When they're at the school, it, it, it felt like a school auditorium. Um, I didn't quite get that, and maybe that is intentional, right? Like the sort of like sterility of suburban life, and so it just feels very, I don't know. But I didn't I didn't get a sense of lived inness as much as possible, as much as as much as the kind of previous worlds that were built, you know. And then I think part of that has to do with just you know obviously like the CGI and stuff that they use for the kind of future and things where they travel. Um, I did. I love that they have the phone booth again. Like that made me super happy that that Mm -hmm. was there. I love that George Carlin got a cameo. That George Carlin. Yeah, I love that George Carlin came back. I thought that was great. Um, Those little touches were really nice. But yeah, but yeah, I I was just a little bit like I felt a little bit. it, It felt like I was watching a YouTube video a little bit or like um I don't know. I don't know. I maybe it's just because fucking digital digital um photography looks a certain way and I'm just you know I prefer a graininess to it. There was something that was kind of like I was watching and I was like ah it's too smooth. You know, it's too clean. There's something like I need a little bit of I need a little bit of graininess in my in in my films. Does that make any sense? Yeah, do you think
0: part of that and this is kind of my Big, my main issue with the film. Do um, you think part of that comes from the fact that they leaned a little bit more into being a hard sci-fi thing, Could whereas be. the like the first film? I mean, maybe I'm misremembering, but it it doesn't even try to like make sense <laughs> as far as a sci-fi film.
1: It's very much just a very simple vehicle for the story about these guys. Right. Well, so here's yeah, and here's the funny thing. Like, how many people out there are like actually, Bill and Ted's is the best time travel movie because it's the most consistent time travel movie, right? Like, like people jokingly talk about that, talking mm-hmm. about that, right? And there's like this debate. Um, and in this film, they kinda, I think, lean into that a little bit, right? Where they do kind of talk about the theories. And I think maybe in a way, it was. They're they're kind of being self-aware, so that's why they leaned into the sci-fi ness because it has been a thing for the last twenty something years. Where there's debates about like how do you actually present time travel on screen and have it be consistent? And is Bill and Ted um, is the is the first film? Is it like one of the better ones that does it? And then they're trying to like justify and explain through uh, not just the actual dialogue, but then maybe also even through the landscape of making it more kind of fleshed out if you will, like, um, it's basically like a Reddit, a Reddit thread come to life, right, of the theories um, from, from based on the first film, and, and, and in some ways I think that's interesting, and then maybe in some ways it does a disservice because it's too sci-fi-y in its aesthetic, rather than them just sitting out in front of a freaking 7-Eleven and all of a sudden a phone booth appears in a parking lot, you know, like, it, it was much more grounded, I felt, the first one was.
0: Yeah, and obviously the fact that in the first film, um, the time travel scenes uh, deliver some pretty epic jokes, like you know a fish out of water type stuff when they're in medieval England yeah. or ancient Greece or whatever, right? Um, and you get you don't put really put them get that in the
1: Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, <laughs> execute them. Bogus. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly, and you don't get that when they go just to the future, pretty much. Um, yeah, and the and the scenes where they see they meet their other selves are kind of funny. The meeting Dave Grohl was pretty great. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it doesn't deliver. it Doesn't have the same punch as going to these historical settings. And then like the kid Cuddy thing, that just was he was terrible.
1: Yeah, 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 All yeah. All his it jokes just, fell I, I flat. Don't and I didn't really understand why. Well, he's like a why sci-fi could... rapper,
0: right? He does all sorts of like sci-fi stuff and,
1: and the hip hop yeah. um, ethos. And so like I
0: get that connection was there, but he was just okay. flat and none of the jokes landed. So it felt really superfluous.
1: Yeah. Agreed. They
0: really, I wish actually they had just had more with their daughters. because I it seems was their just their to say were that. great. They were fucking great, man.
1: Oh and I do God. hope,
0: like, I, do you love that they always say dads?
1: <laughs> dads. <laughs> hey, dads. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, it is very good. Yeah, they were actually fa- – yeah, they were fantastic. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I, maybe a little bit leaning a little bit more on that – the family stuff. But I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It just felt a little bit – I felt a little bit of a disconnect. But I did just kind of enjoy, like I said, spending you know an hour and a half or whatever it was um, with with the dudes – And the daughters and even the princesses. I'm actually glad that the princesses had a little bit more to do because I I loved the princesses when I was younger, man.
0: Yeah, they really produce more of that fish-out-of-water stuff. Like, yeah, it's always familial interactions with Bill and Ted that are so great because they're so sweet and innocent and yet clearly kind of they're idiots at the same time, but lovable idiots. Those produce the most because you care about them and it's funny and that produces the best feeling overall.
1: Yeah. Now, do you think that the same um, themes of them being an ethical subject that you talked about that is so rich in the first film, does it translate into the second film or is there kind of a different do they take a, a different form, let's say, of an ethical subject?
0: Yeah. So this is a, a thing I wanted to ask you, ask you about. Cause I thought the ending of the film was an interesting choice that was obviously very intentional. I'm still thinking about what it's supposed to really mean. Um so I think those themes do come across, right? Again, they're they're not Garage Band, Stoner Bros, Server Bros, but they're you know middle aged men trying to make their band work, kind of pathetic Bros. It's a new kind of like the the least likely to be an ethical subject to be an emulated model of virtue is that person, right? Um, and that they, they don't trade so much on. Uh, Bill and Ted themselves becoming like these ethical subjects who are worthy of emulation. But I think it's because they, they move it to the daughters or at least that was seemed like to kind of be the intention was the daughters emulate them and they are the, they don't really follow a model of like teenage girlhood. Um, they just love each other and they love music and they have like a, uh, like archeological level knowledge of music history and stuff that they show up all the time, <laughs> uh, which is great. But they don't really know what to do with their lives. Like they don't know, they don't want to get jobs. They don't like have a career path in mind, right? So they're they're kind of transitioning to being those new figures, right? And they end up actually saving the world, not through Mm. actually having musical talent, right? They don't produce the great creation that changes the world as everyone thought Bill and Ted were going to do, right? They actually curate other people Mm. who have musical talent saving the world. Jimmy Hendrix, Louis Armstrong, uh, the Neanderthal drummer, <laughs> oh, whoever that was, um, and so it's not—it's like a love of music without actually having any talent that ends up saving the world. And so it mm. seems to me like there's something that they were trying to make a point with there, that not necessarily your prodigious talent, like your. Uh, it, which kind of leads into like a noblesse oblige kind of thing, right? Like the people with the greatest natural talents will save the world when they sacrifice for the greater good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of even like, even like that Nietzschean like looking for the ubermensch to then be the one who, um, you know, produces the greatest value in the world. But it's like, no, like regular dumb people <laughs> make value in the world by loving each other and loving stuff. And their care and affection for that stuff and for each other without having any talent at all, without, having, without being special or unique at all. Right? Mm. It kind of seemed like that. It seemed like it wasn't really on the surface, but that may have been what they were kind of going for with having the surprise twist be that they curate the song that Saves the World rather than actually writing it. What do you think about that?
1: Did you see the Pixar film Soul?
0: Yeah. yeah I just saw it. It's kind think. of. S-
1: Yeah, there's something similar going on there a little bit, right? Like, it actually juxtaposes the the guy who has his singular vision to be the great musician, right? Mm -hmm. And there's all this talk about the spark and stuff like that. And then you know of course it's it's sentimental and i i I liked soul i didn't love it i don't think it's like the best pixar film but i think it was good right They're, they're all their films are fucking good but one of the things that was interesting is you know it's it's um it's he thinks that his life was a waste because he didn't make it and then what he learns is that no like my life wasn't a waste. I have this relationship with my mother and my mother's friends and um, I can pay attention to the barber and um, I've influenced how many students and I've worked with them and you have that one student that is just like so enthusiastic that's like, you know, you were basically my hero kind of thing and he never put in any any value into those things but those things are extremely valuable. So again, I think there's a kind of similar theme there and, and yeah, I think there is something about I don't know what that means for for Bill and Ted's daughters, right? Um, does that mean that it's um, that it's love that changes the world? Does it mean that it's um, that actually they were that they are capable? Um, they just need to find ways, like they're, they're curators or they're producers, is what they are, right? Mm-hmm. They pro- they produce that final concert. They produce that final song. You know, that's, that's basically what they, they do. They're, they're kind of like bringing people together. So there's something about having the capacity to see talents and to spread. And, um, this person is the the, contributes X and that person contributes Y, or you can use the body metaphor, you're the hand and you're the eyes and you're the fingers and you're the toes and you know, you're the butt hair or whatever, but you all come (laughs) together to create the, 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 machine, um, So I I don't really know what to say. I'm kind of just rambling here. But um, I think there is something interesting and something powerful about that kind of theme. The question is, and and I know a lot of people out there are kind of like, oh, yeah, but is this cheesy, right? Like can this actually, like from a real political and social perspective, is this really something that we ought – like what does this mean for us? Like does that mean that we should all just kind of like – I don't know. I, I don't know. What the fuck does it mean for us? Right, like I think people who are so politically minded always want to know, okay, so strategically, what does this mean?, what do we do? great, you're talking about all this shit, blah 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 blah, blah. what do we do? you know how do we how do we take power? How do we confront power? <laughs> there are power structures, you know, how do we do that sort of thing, and maybe not that that's wrong, but maybe that that quickness to just simply rush to that sort of um Demand, maybe that in itself is insufficient, right? I've heard I've heard Todd McGowan talk about what he calls like the Foucauld, Foucauldianization of uh, of political discourse, where it's just everyone is obsessed with power, 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 power all the time, mm-hmm. and of course Todd McGowan is a psychoanalyst, and so he wants to kind of. Um, move in a different trajectory but i think one way we could also say is the trajectory is uh, is is when you're so obsessed with power 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 power. there's a speed that corresponds to that but what we're talking about uh when you start talking about love when you start talking about curation when you start talking about community when you start talking about kind of bringing people together to uh to realize their talents and their gifts the the speed at which you're dealing, the rate of demand um, is totally different. It's a totally different type of resonance, a totally different type of pace, right? Um, now, the funny thing is, of course, they've got like a, a, a time limit. They got to do it within a certain amount of time, right? So, I mean, <laughs> whatever. But but the point is, is that I think to really build community, what they're actually doing is they're, they've got that moment where they have to do it within a certain time frame, but really they also are – taking thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human exploration of art and creativity and music, and they bring them together. So it is a very slow thing. So there's something maybe there as well, like that political and and social activities, um, if they're so obsessed with power and power relations, then what that does is that sort of like dictates a frenetic motion machine, right? Whereas... Whereas maybe when you're talking about love, passion, community, art, etc., it it operates by a different speed. It takes time, you know. And, you know, uh, the only way that it could culminate in this moment where they save the world is if they also go all the way back to the beginning of humanity, 100,000 years or whatever it is, you know. And that's not satisfactory for people who want political answers now.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, the notion is that we don't need to be reminded about the importance of power. Like <laughs> that couldn't be more obviously on display at every moment. Right. Um, almost no one needs to be reminded of that, but we probably do need to be reminded about the importance of care. Right. And I, I think yeah. I'd I use the term care rather than love because love kind of, especially in popular consciousness has this connotation of like a, a romantic feeling and stuff like yeah. that. Right. Which, which can itself be, I think very bad um, in certain contexts and without important checks on it. Um, but care is a, I think a a much more broad term because it can Mm -hmm. apply to things as well as people and communities, uh, and people who don't necessarily know each other. Right. Whereas it's hard to talk about love as being that way. And I think that, that ends up in some wrong territory. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's a good thing to be reminded about. Right. And I think this dovetails really nicely with what we were saying earlier about the idea that the world needs to change around Bill and Ted, the world undergoes. Um, like subjective destitution and character development (laughs) not bill and ted necessarily they just kind of learn some things Um, so that's an important point to be reminded of is just that like what are the important things in life that really matter like what what kind of world would actually allow these characters who are totally innocent and lovable and we like them and we wish more people were like them at a base level in terms of how they're oriented towards the world would the world have to look like for those people to flourish right very different than the current one and that kind of i think that reminds Mm -hmm. us of the fact that you know like contemporary late capitalism it it takes these figures of goodness and not only does it reject them it casts them as like actually evil right or as actually bad wrong in some important way as like malfunctioning individuals so that tells us that the system itself it's it's taking what should be valuable what does matter caring for other people caring for history making art um devoting your time towards things of value and it actually like makes you hate them or reject them or think that they're unworthy and that's that that fucking sucks it's good to be reminded of the fact that um the system itself structures us as subjects in that way in a very very unhealthy way that's contrary towards all the things we actually care about
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's so interesting that you can get all of this from a fucking stoner comedy, huh? <laughs> it's not a normal stoner comedy, right? That's the point. It is not. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I guess, in wrapping this up, the last thing I'll say is, I just can't recommend this enough, and I worry actually um, uh, that that like people won't get it. But I really hope, like, if you haven't seen it, but I really hope you can just fucking embrace all all that it is and its innocence and silliness, and um, you know what? It's what's nice about it. We were talking so much earlier about like how can you make Instagram authentic and shit like that, and we're like, well, maybe it's you know some sort of like like ironic relation to it or whatever. There's like zero irony in Bill and Ted, right? Mm-hmm. It's like just straight up honest authentic right like there, there there's like it's zero very earnest, ironic yeah. what uh what's that
0: it's very earnest yeah
1: very earnest there's like no ironic detachment and that's one of the things that's really nice about it right so it kind of in a way it has a very different feel from a lot of um like, I mean, I guess maybe the 80s, because it's still kind of, I'm glad you mentioned like John Hughes earlier, like those are also very earnest, right? So the 90s then is when you start to get that turn towards like the, the postmodern ironic comedy. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas like, maybe this is just like, maybe this is like the last hurrah, like right around this time period, right before that kind of shift in, uh, in TV and films and stuff like that. And now it's coming back. Mm-hmm right? Like there is that whole meta modern turn or post-postmodern turn where there is a, the new sincerities or um, an earnestness or, or something along those lines that is kind of making a comeback. But it totally fits in that vein, you know, in so many ways. And it makes sense because the people who grew up watching Bill and Ted's and John Hughes films are now the ones who are kind of like the parents of like the people that are in these other films, right? So it's like maybe, maybe it was like we just needed to skip over and i'm not shitting on all the 90s like stuff but maybe you just needed to kind of like have that moment so that we could get to this like kind of like rediscovery if you will of earnestness you know
0: yeah i mean i think people eventually saw the poverty of irony that it's a it's a nice tool to use as a as a vehicle for a larger point but when it is itself the larger point it's pretty vacuous you know um there is no like ultimate intrinsic value and in an ironic posture towards the important things in life. It's just a good way to not take yourself too seriously. So you got to get know place in some moments of irony to make sure you're not overly serious. And the reason why Bill and Ted, even though it's very saccharine, it's not overly saccharine because it takes these figures who are not from the field of life you would expect saccharine uh, like emotional stuff to come from, Right. Uh, it'd be very different if Bill and Ted were, you know, jocks um, or class presidents or whatever. You just you couldn't make that, that same movie, right?
1: They have to be like dumb surfer bros for it to work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, cool. Go watch Bill and Ted. Watch the whole trilogy if you want. We didn't talk anything really about Bogus Journey, but um, they meet the Grim Reaper. So it's kind of fun and he and makes jim an martin, appearance
0: jim martin from faith no the Moore
1: is in it which is pretty great oh, really? oh yeah and and uh and obviously death makes an appearance in the new film too so it's good stuff good stuff yeah, i'm really good, glad that they the used a lot of the lines. same what's yeah exactly with a sick baseline i'm really glad they used a lot of the same cast as much as possible too you know that was cool i did enjoy that for the new one yeah bringing back those guys it was great hell yeah All right, sick, let's go ahead and move on to our final segment of the show. All right, so this is the final segment of the episode. It is The Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to tell you about something that is giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. And of course, we just talked about one thing that could give you meaning with this fantastic film franchise and being excellent to each other, but... Troy's going to give us something else. He's going to give us a little nugget, and his nuggets are always pretty good. So, Troy, what are you going to teach us?
0: So, My Sticky Leaves is actually another film, and that's Another Round by Thomas Vinterberg starring Mads uh-huh. Nicholson. I uh, texted you about this, didn't I? Yes. I can't remember what I said, but... Um, you said...
1: You just said, have you seen... Vinterberg's newest and I said no not yet I really want to and you said yeah dude you got to check it out because of it's got some amazing Kierkegaard themes in it and stuff like oh, that. Oh
0: that's right yeah I mentioned the Kierkegaardian themes. So the film starts out with an epigraph from Kierkegaard I was actually trying to pull it up but I couldn't find it in the last couple of minutes so you'll have to look up that epigraph for yourself. Uh, but obviously Vinterberg and Mikkelsen are Danish right so Kierkegaard's the most famous Danish philosopher probably one of the most famous Danish Figures in literature, I would imagine. Um, so it's not like it's a esoteric thing for a Danish film to cite Kierkegaard, right? But Kierkegaard's a pretty notorious, difficult, uh, notoriously difficult to understand thinker. So it's not like you're, you
1: know, quoting Emerson or something, right? Um, mm. So is it is it a um, is it a, a, a Kierkegaard quote that says? Um, da, 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 da. Oh, wait, is is it about like, oh, shit, never mind. I thought I had it, but I don't have it. Yeah, never mind. Well, if you find find it, interrupt me. Um,
0: Yeah, I thought I found it. Yeah, if you don't know Vinterberg and Mickelson, everyone knows Mads Mickelson, right? He's a pretty famous actor at this point in America for a lot of like um, character actor stuff and cameos in like Marvel films and and stuff like that. And he also plays
1: Hannibal in the Netflix series, Hannibal, if you've seen that. Which is fantastic. yeah, and he's the bad guy in Casino Royale, the guy who's like eye bleeds. Yeah, so. and he's in one of my favorite movies of all time, which is also another Vinterberg film, The Hunt. So
0: yeah, that's what I that. wanted to mention was The Hunt is the the last time that they were together in a film, and it's probably I think when we back like years ago when we did our like favorite films of each year list. That was my favorite film of that year. Um, it's and I've never watched it. I've only watched it once. I I could never mm-hmm. watch The Hunt again. It's too. Physically assaulting of a film. It's about yeah. um, a uh, kindergarten or preschool teacher who is falsely accused by a preschool girl of having touched her, um, and she doesn't do it in a like super nefarious way. She's just kind of confused, and uh, she gets some leading. Oh, another teacher like kind of accidentally leads her on to the accusation, and uh, Matt Mickelson's character has to deal with the like oncoming onslaught of accusations of having touched a preschool girl and it's just it's it's so unnerving to watch it's a fantastic film but you couldn't i don't know you could watch it more than once because of how i found
1: i found the quote by the way too when you're ready but yeah sorry okay i totally interrupted you yeah
0: so yeah that was that was the hunt it's one of the best films of the last decade and they're back together for a new movie another round and it
1: starts with this epigraph what is youth a dream what is love the dream's contents yeah, I love
0: that because I have no fucking idea what it means. <laughs> but uh, Kierkegaard gets brought up again uh, later on in the film. There's a um, a high school student who's doing oral exams to graduate. And he's and incredibly has to like talk about the importance of anxiety for Kierkegaard. I think it's something like that, which is a key theme for Kierkegaard, right? From like the concept of anxiety and elsewhere. Um Amazing to think you would have to talk about Kierkegaard for a high school oral examination. (laughs) But uh, I think it's very purposeful because – and I even mentioned earlier in this episode the idea of keeping two contradictory thoughts that are both true in your mind. It's kind of a Kierkegaardian idea, right? Philosophical Fragment talks a lot about that in regards to um, God and salvation. And this film is brilliant, I think, because it's it's called uh, Drunk in – danish and they they changed hmm. it to another round um i think just did not sound as uh, upfront, <laughs> right It'd be a little bit more subtle um, but the film is about uh four high school teachers who decide to engage in an experiment a social experiment where they're going to be constantly low-level drunk throughout the day and see if it enhances <laughs> their performance as teachers and um and as co-workers right so not on weekends and not in the evening, but just during the day when they're at work, they're going to be constant low level 0.5 uh, alcohol blood level or 0.05, excuse me, 0.5, you'd be dead. Um, so that they're just engaged in this social experiment. So it's a comedy. It's like a dramedy, right? There's a lot of funny moments and um, they end up like usually being um, a lot better at their jobs, more engaged, more passionate. They're middle-aged. They've kind of lost their passion for teaching. They've lost their passion for their loved ones. They're just kind of going through the motions, right? And being drunk enlivens them, right? It gets them back to being passionate about the things they actually love. Matt Nicholson himself, like, um, becomes this great uh, history teacher. Um, And the students really love him. And he goes from being a a nothing who's probably going to get fired to actually being a great teacher, and so there's all these funny moments that happen there, right? Um, and I don't want to talk too much about what happens afterwards because I want people to watch it, and especially you, Austin, because I want to get your take on it eventually. But the end is great because it really takes this notion of, um, of the two contradictory thoughts. And I'll just say that The Simpsons probably best encapsulated this idea when Homer Simpson says, alcohol, both the cause and solution to all of life's problems.
1: Hmm.
0: And it takes that notion um, of sort of the joy that can come from being drunk, but then also the terrible effects that can happen, right? And tries to make some sort of judgment on, and I think Denmark actually has a huge problem with alcoholism. So I'm sure this means a lot to, um, to kind of Danish culture as both celebrating what's great about the kind of community formation and joy that comes from you know, having a high, basically, right? And then also sort of the terrible effects that can have on one's person and the family life and stuff like that when you're inebriated and don't have your wits about you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I'm not even describing it well because the film, through narrative, juxtaposes these, these contradictory elements so beautifully. And the ending is probably, it's going to go down as one of the great cinema, cinematic endings in history, I think. It's wow. so incredibly... Moving um of an ending, and I don't want to say anything else about it, even like descriptors, because then it'll it'll give things away. But um let's just say it's it's going to be. I think if it gets enough exposure, it'll be Mads mickelson's defining moment of his career, the ending to this, wow. to this film. I don't know that it will get that kind of exposure because it's not really a you know um like a, like a like a like a pleasant. I shouldn't say it's not a pleasant film. It is a pleasant film. It's not really the kind of thing that's gonna like break box office records is probably not going right. to win like a best foreign film. I wouldn't imagine. Um, it probably says a little bit more about Danish culture than is enough to be universal. Right. Mm. Although I think that if you're you know, a little bit more abstract with it, you can get a lot from it, even if you're not um, part of Danish culture, I would imagine. But anyway, that's a lot of beating around the bush. It's a fantastic film. I loved it. I encourage everybody who's out there to, to watch it in whatever way you can.
1: Okay. I'm going to watch it this week for sure. Um, I found the rest of the Kierkegaard quote, by the way, and I don't know if this uh, helps, but it's, What is youth? A dream. What is love? The dream's content. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Oh, that's the much more famous Kierkegaard quote. (laughs) Yeah, that life can only be understood. But yeah, so this is the first half of that much more famous quote, right?
0: I didn't know it was connected to that one. That's pretty great. I wonder why they chose not include the more famous part of the quote.
1: I mean, is there something about them, because they're friends, right? And are they reclaiming their youth? So there's something about the contents of the dream... That they're able to tap into, which is what love is, right? And, yeah, and those things are youthful youthful fantasies or youthful passions or desires. It's something like that, right?
0: Yeah, it's very much like they're clearly going through a midlife crisis, right? Being drunk all day enlivens their passions and make them remember the sort of virility of being young, right? Yeah. And that's not just sad and pathetic, although it also is kind of sad and pathetic, right? <laughs> it's, both, it's both full of joy and passion and all these great things and it's also sad and pathetic and you've got to be able to hold both of those things in your mind at the same time and the ending i think just really wraps that up so well um but again you'll have to watch it to see i think it'll be very clear when you watch it and see though that it wraps it up in that way
1: Mm. Mm. yeah i uh when you recommended it to me then michael burns recommended it um i've had you know a couple of people kind of say that I need to check this out, so I'm kind of like, "All right, I gotta, I gotta." It would gotta. be a great
0: video for Wisecrack, I think.
1: Taking Kierkegaard to playing into another
0: round, probably not a I film know, that, the, that meant much I, of the Wisecrack I, audience is super into, though.
1: That's the problem. It actually came up in conversation in the writers' room. The problem is, it's just it's such a small film that we don't know if anyone would even listen. Like we could talk about it on the podcast. We don't know if anyone would give a shit mm. about it. But maybe if we flood Wisecrack with emails and requests, maybe <laughs> we can. I don't know. I'll start the dummy accounts. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, cool. Yeah, no, I'll definitely, I'll definitely freaking check that out. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch it asap. Um, I don't know if I can watch it tonight. Um, but uh, I'll definitely try and get to it this week. That would be great. Yeah, sick. let me
0: know what you think. I'm really curious because I think it's right up your alley.
1: Okay, cool, man. I'm stoked. All right, so we're back. It's 2021. <laughs> we did a regular. We did a regular episode. Here we are. Life is crazy, but we're going to be consistent, and uh, we're going to keep producing that sick ass content. Bonus episodes will be coming out periodically. We've got a uh, patron chosen episode coming up here in the next couple weeks um we got to get back to that yeah got to get back into marcus gabriel we got to finish that and then we're talking about doing some other cool stuff potentially with regards to the patreon other other gifts and things like that that we can kind of give out to people for their support that they uh, that they provide to us so um yeah so so stay tuned uh get in touch with us um, check out True West. You know, go purchase those live stream tickets. Like I said, it's cheaper than a fucking movie, that's for sure. Um, and uh, and it's going to be a great fucking show. We've got this really awesome video production company that's going to make sure that it looks all sick and everything like that. Um, so check that out. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. You can hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Troy and I are both individually on Twitter. Uh, you can find us that way. You know, we're out there. Um, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, dude.
0: There's
1: just one more thing I can think of to say, man. Oh, you got one more thing to say. What's that? Be excellent to each other, Americana. Yeah, yeah.